This past Tuesday evening, pop culture history was made. Now, I'm sure you're waiting with bated breath, wanting to know the great historical thing that occurred this past Tuesday evening. For the first time in its 21-season history, a trio won The Voice. This is the, this is, this is the winners uh, that were crowned this past Tuesday evening. The group is called Girl Named Tom, and it's comprised of three siblings. Uh, that is Caleb on the left, that's their baby sister, Becca Grace, in the middle, and that is Joshua there on the right. And when the boys were young, uh, there's six years difference between the oldest and, and the sister, and then four years between the other brother and sister. When the girl was born, her brothers called her Thomas. I guess they were wanting another baby brother, uh, but they didn't get a baby brother, and so that's kind of how the name came, girl named Tom. They are really, really good. I didn't watch The Voice, and I, so when I, when I was doing my research and going through this, I went, of course I went to YouTube and played some of their songs. If you like tight harmony, oh, I mean, family harmony, it's good. If you remember songs, uh, the, the, the sound is like, uh, some like, the sound is kind of like from the 60s, folk songs, uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, uh, but they are, they are really, really, really good. Immediately after their win on Tuesday... They flew back home to South Bend, Indiana to be with their father and mother. Chris, their father, had in 2019 had received a diagnosis of a rare cancer. And while they were performing uh, and while they were crowned as the winner of The Voice, uh, he was in terrible pain following his most recent surgery. And immediately afterwards, they, they flew back home. The siblings told reporters that their parents had wanted them to stay and compete because it brought relief to their father to watch his three children, with whom he had shared the gift of music with, doing something that they loved so much. Amid his pain, watching his children perform was not only a distraction for him, but it gave him comfort and it gave him hope. Experiencing comfort and hope in times of suffering and pain is a uniquely human capacity. This capacity, however, is tested to the limit when the suffering we encounter is unjust, when the whys of its existence cannot or are not answered to our satisfaction. When we experience unjust suffering and we, we, can't, we can't find the reason why or we're not told the reason why or, or the, every, every reason we come up with is wrong, uh, it, makes, it makes it hard. It makes it tough. But this morning our text opens the door wide, showing us how comfort and hope can be our companion. It doesn't take away the pain. It doesn't take away the sting, the hurt of unjust suffering. But comfort and hope can be our companion in times of unjust suffering. Now, as we've made our way through this section of, of, of 1 Peter chapter 2, which the, the section kind of begins in, in, in verse uh, 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 21 that we've looked at uh, here the last couple of weeks, as you recall, Peter uses four relative clauses to specifically he makes it, those clauses make it specific for us to, to show us what Jesus did 
when he experienced unjust suffering. Last week we told you that this passage has been used for, remember the WWJD, what would Jesus do? And, and we said, you know, uh, while that may have started out well, it eventually became uh, uh, something that kind of became part of the, the culture, kind of a... a, 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 a um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, kind of became something that was uh, just part of, uh, everybody did it. Everybody enjoyed it. Everybody did it. And that the, the primary focus, however, is not what would Jesus do, but what Jesus did. What did Jesus do when he experienced unjust suffering? And last week, we unpacked two of those clauses. In verse 22, if you look at verse 22, where it says, He committed no sin... Uh, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Uh, uh, we said, as we looked at that passage there, again, the, the clause there, he who, uh, th- that's how these clauses, he who, he who, he who, he who, he who committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. That our Lord was perfectly innocent, and yet he experienced unjust suffering. Perfectly innocent, never committed a sin. And we, 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 we talked about the emphasis there, that the emphasis there is upon his words. And, and usually when we are attacked in a way or we experience unjust suffering, usually we have some maybe not so choice or maybe some choice words for those who bring that upon us. And yet Jesus, when he was experiencing the unjust suffering, he did not use his mouth in a way that was sinful. He didn't use his mouth in a way that was sinful. And we talked about that our identification identification with Jesus gives us the why from God's perspective. In other words, when we experience unjust suffering, it's not because God's abandoned us. It's not because God has forgotten about us. It's not because God has uh, God's gone on a vacation and, 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 and has gotten a little sloppy in the way that He does things. It's because of our identification with Christ. Because we are, as First Peter chapter 2 teaches us, we have been called to be slaves. That's, that's our destiny. My destiny is to be a slave of God. A slave of God. And because of that, just as Jesus was, and again, Isaiah 53 is all throughout these verses. As we talked about verses 21 through 25, you find him refer- citing it. Or, uh, and that's why we've been reading Isaiah 53 uh, from for the last couple of weeks, he, he cites this and refers to it over and over and over. Jesus as the ultimate suffering slave. And if we're going to follow his steps, if we're going to, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, put our, put our feet in the footprints of where he's walked in the snow, then it means that our life is going to be a life where we're going to experience uh, unjust suffering. But it's something that leads to glory. It's something that leads to glory. It's not because God's abandoned us. It's because we've been identified with Christ and we take encouragement from the fact that because Jesus experienced this, He knows and He understands so we can follow Him with confidence from suffering to glory. From suffering to glory. In verse 23, it was the second clause that we looked at. Look at the text again. It says, When He was reviled... He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. When he who, or he who, he who was reviled, he did not revile again. In other words, Jesus guides our reaction. Jesus did not respond in kind. When reviled, 
he, he didn't give tit for tat. When they pulled a knife, he didn't pull out a gun. When, he, when they pulled out a gun, they, he didn't pull out an Uzi. Okay? If they pulled out an Uzi, he didn't pull out a bazooka. He didn't respond. There was no tit for tat. Jesus did not respond in kind, but rather chose to commit himself to the one who judges justly. Why? Why? Because Jesus knew his unjust suffering was always part of God's mysterious way in accomplishing his purpose. We, 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 have, we, have, we have hammered this point home the last three or four weeks if it wasn't for the fact that Jesus suffered unjustly you and I would have no hope it required the unjust suffering of Jesus in order for me to be saved it required the unjust suffering of Jesus in order for you to have access to the Father Without Jesus suffering unjustly, there is no salvation. There is no salvation. It's part of God's mysterious way in accomplishing His purposes. This morning, we unpack the final two clauses that are found in verse 24 and Peter's summary statement in verse 25. So hope and comfort can be found in a believer's unjust suffering by means of its ethical implications. The third relative clause is found there in verse 24. He who, he who himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. There's the third clause. In other words, we're told here, and Peter tells us that Jesus suffered unjustly. He himself bore our sins. Our sins. In other words, Peter is talking about a penal vicarious death. Jesus paid a penalty. Jesus paid a penalty on the cross, and the penalty that he paid was not for his own sins, but for the sins of others. Or sometimes it's referred to as substitutionary atonement. You do not have Christianity without substitutionary atonement. Without substitutionary, you cannot be Christian and deny substitutionary atonement. Jesus didn't die because uh, Jesus didn't die a martyr. Jesus didn't die as an example. Jesus didn't die uh, because of, of, the, of the cruelty of man. Jesus came to die in order that he might pay the penalty, the penalty for my sin and your sin. There's other reasons, but, but, the, but Jesus died a substitutionary death. And Peter emphasizes that the perfect one died as a Roman criminal on the cross. And it's emphasized by what he says, the, 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 uh, the, the, the prepositional phrases that he uses there. He says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. In his body on the tree. Jesus died a physical excruciating death on the tree. And so basically, he drives home two points by using those phrases. Jesus was not only condemned by Rome, he was cursed by God. Deuteronomy 21-23 talks about that the one who is hung on the tree is cursed by God. The tree was a place, it was the gallows. And the cross is the gallows for Jesus. And the tree of Calvary. And so, basically, Jesus, Peter's letting us know here that Jesus suffered unjustly, 
And as he's suffering unjustly, he's not only been condemned by man, he's been cursed by God. Condemned by man and cursed by God. Peter drives home the point. Jesus unjustly suffered as a sin offering upon the altar of the cross. Why is Peter driving this point home to us? Why is he once again putting this for our thinking? Because God had a purpose, an ethical implication for the, for the lives of those who would find forgiveness in the atonement of Christ. It, it, and we put the Greek phrase up there for you. It's a henna clause, okay? I, love, like I told you last week, I love henna clauses. Because henna clauses basically tell you the purpose. It gives you the reason. You can see it in the English text. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that, or in order that, or so that. And when you look at it, I mean, Peter just mean boom, boom. In, uh, in order that to sins we die, to righteousness we live. That's a literal translation. In order that to sins, plural, we die, to righteousness we live. ESV translates it this way, that we may die to sin and live to righteousness. Peter tells us why. And the word that he uses there, the fourth word that's used there, apogenomeno, apogenomeno. I always had a problem saying, saying these words, minoi, minoi, I'm sorry. It's the only time it's used in the New Testament. That's the only time it's used in the New Testament. It means to be away from, to be far from, to have no part in, to separate oneself from, or to die. You can have, it has, it, those, those are uh, the, the, the different uh, nuances of the uh, uh, glosses of, the, of that meaning there. It can mean when it's, it, when it's used in the culture, it was used to talk about something that, that you, you, you move away from, you want to be far from it, you want to have no part in it, you want to be separated completely from it, or simply means to die. Jesus' unjust suffering. Here's, here's the purpose. Here's the ethical implication. that Jesus' unjust suffering enables us to have a decisive break and separation from sin so that we may see sinning. That's the implication of it. Peter drives home the point in, 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 in the verse. He himself, Jesus, Jesus himself, only Jesus, a lot of people were crucified. But it was he who, he who himself, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we would keep ourselves as far away from sin as possible. That's the ethical implication of his unjust suffering that we would die to sin, that we would cease from sinning. But not only is there a put off, there's a put on, because in the next phrase he says, there in the text, and live to righteousness. Live to righteousness. His unjust suffering not only enables us to have a decisive break, it's enabled us to have a decisive... Sin no longer has to control me. I'm not under its domination I'm to be as far away from it as I can get. But I don't know about you. I'm always the kind of person that tries to walk as close to the line as possible without crossing over. I mean, there, there's a rebel inside of me. I told you when, when, it, when I was working at UPS, they put out these stripes as you're walking into the, into the hub and you have to stay within those stripes. You know, 
can't get outside. And there was a good reason for it. And I, 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 mean, I, I mean, I think about this, I think just, I mean, just how much my heart, I would walk as close to that line <laughs> as I could get. I mean, there's nobody watching me. There's nobody monitoring me. But I'm just as walking as close to, to as, as close as I can get. And that's how we tend to be when it comes to sin sometimes. We try to get as close as we can get to it and still feel respectable about ourselves. And the reason why Jesus, one of the implications of Jesus' unjust suffering is so that we can get as far away from it as possible. It's possible to get as far away from it so that we can live righteous lives. Lives characterized by righteousness. Uh, lives characterized by doing the right thing. We do the right thing. Simply, that's a simple definition of righteousness. Just doing the right thing. Jesus' unjust suffering had ethical implications for others. And so does mine, and so does yours. Now, put that on the back burner. We'll come back to it. We'll see how, that, how it's done that way. Also in unjust suffering, hope can be found because of its paradoxical effect. Look at verse 24. Again, it says, He Himself... I'm, I'm sorry, uh, uh, verse 24, uh, the second part of verse 24. By His wounds you were healed. By, it should be 24b. By His words you... By His wounds you were healed. He whose wounds is a relative clause. He whose... It cites Isaiah 53... Uh, it cites Isaiah 53.5. And the words that Peter uses here are graphic. It's graphic, the word used for wounds. It depicts the bruises and welts one would expect after a, after a severe beating or being pummeled in a boxing match. That's Rocky Marciano and, and uh, Jersey Joe Walcott. Okay? And I, I, that's probably the least graphic one that I could find. I mean, it's hard, maybe hard to see, but, but Marciano's, you can see where his eyes are puffed up and uh, uh, Joe Walcott's, where his, 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 his cheek is kind of puffed up there. I think this is the punch that knocks him out. But if you've ever seen a boxing match, a brutal boxing match, where they, I mean, and their faces, they're just, just the, the, the bruises and how it welts up, that's the word that's used here. It's the word that's used here. Another, another thing that came to my mind, if you remember, uh, oh, what was that? Walking Tall. Y'all remember that movie, Walking Tall? Uh, about that, about that sheriff. I think he was in Tennessee or whatever, trying to. Uh, it was, he, uh, the, the whole town was corrupt, and he was trying to do it. And, and some of the some of the uh, senior elements got a hold of him and just just took a whip to his back and just beat him. And during the trial and stuff, he he stands up and just rips open his shirt and shows them their, his back of how they were how he was beaten. That's the idea here. The, the a severe beating where you have these bruises and these, these welts come up. And also the present tense. Another thing, this, this verse is often misunderstood here. The, 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 the past tense of the word healing, uh, where it talks about by his wounds, and again he's quoting from Isaiah 53, 5, by his wounds you have been healed. The past tense of the word healing and the context of Isaiah 53, especially the next verse, verse 6, which, which Peter uses in verse 25, disputes the false idea that Christ's atonement provides physical healing. Christ's atonement does not provide physical healing. When you look at what the, the text is being talked about, it's not talking about our physical healing. Does God heal? I believe He does. I, I've seen God do it. 
But it's not because I went and slapped somebody upside the head and they, they got healed. God can heal. God can do anything he wants to do. But the phys physical, physical healing is not found in the atonement. But so, there's something greater. And here's the point that Peter's making. The fatal physical wounds of Jesus, the wounds of unjust suffering, paradoxically, provided healing. <laughs> wounds provided healing. His physical wounds provided spiritual healing. The fatal physical wounds of Jesus, the wounds of unjust suffering, paradoxically provided healing. Healing for our fatal spiritual wounds. And this is important for the group that Peter's writing to. Because these believers had and would continue to experience with greater intensity the wounds of unjust suffering. Physically, mentally, and emotionally. So how does this affect us? Again, I want you to put that one on the, the, the second burner in the back. And we'll get to it. These believers needed healing and they needed hope. As he closes out, as Peter makes his summary statement in verse 25, we find that hope is also found in the transformational protection. In transformational protection. Again, look at verse 25. For you were strained like sheep. He's quoting from Isaiah 53, 6. For you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Peter now comes full, full, full circle. We've talked to you often. He comes full circle by using, uh, in, by using a summary. He makes a summary statement, but he also uses imagery. And, and, and we've talked to you about inclusios, where you have one thing said here and then another thing said here, and it kind of it puts brackets around, and everything in the middle there kind of unpacks what he said here uh, in, in the brackets. Here, Peter uses, uh, it's brilliant what he does here. P the image that Peter uses provides a visual for the statement in verse 21, forming an inclusio. Look at what verse 21 says. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in His steps. So that you might follow in His steps. Look at verse 25. For you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd. What do sheep do? With a shepherd, they follow him, don't they? They follow him. So Peter makes the statement saying that we have been called to follow in the steps of Jesus. And then Peter uses an image to drive the statement home. We have now returned to our shepherd, to the shepherd of our souls. Look at what he says here in this summary. Peter reminds his readers three things as to why they should follow Christ even when he leads us down the path of unjust suffering. He talks to us, first of all, about a past condition. For you were strained like sheep. Again, from Isaiah 53, 6. You were, you, we were strained sheep. If you're, a child, if, you are, if you're a child of God, if you're a born-again believer, if you put your faith and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ to make you acceptable to God, prior to that, like everybody else, you are a strange sheep. You are a strange sheep. It's a term that's used in the Old Testament to describe the nation of Israel when she, she is leaderless. 
it's a term that describes the nation of Israel when she is under wicked rulers. And, and, and it's a good way to describe people who don't know Christ. They're, they, they're leaderless. No God. No God. I'm God. I'm going to live my life. I'm going to do things my way. I'm not, I, 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 may, I may live by a set of core principles, but those core principles are my core principles. It's what I decide. If I want to live a kind of life that says that I need to be good to others, that is my set of core principles. And if you want to live according to a different set of core principles, that's your business. But there's not going to be, I, I'm going to decide. I'm going to be the ruler. I'm going to be the ruler of my destiny. I'm going to be the one who gets to choose. I'm going to do all of that. But also the, the idea of under wicked rulers. We, we, are, we, are, we are slaves to sin and don't even know it. We're, we're following Satan and we don't even know it. But he talks about our past condition. But then he talks about a transformational change. He says, for you were strained like sheep, but have now. There's a contrast there. He uses a contrastive word. But have now. There's a change. Something's changed. Something's different. And what's changed and what's different is now their present condition. When he says, you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus is described as the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Now, the way Peter uses the word soul, don't think of that part of you that is, you know, uh, you know when we talk about a soul getting saved. The way that Peter is using soul and the way that other New Testament writers use the word soul talks about the totality of our being. I, I'm not a trichotomist. I don't, I don't think we're body, soul, and spirit. I think we're inner man, outer man. I don't, I don't like it when we try to, because the Bible also talks about our heart, it also talks about our mind, it also talks about our will, and I, I really don't like it when we try to slice and dice ourselves. I think we, we are fearfully and wonderfully made, not just physically, but the totality of who we are. My physical life it, it, it has influence upon my spiritual life. My spiritual life affects my physical life. Uh, and so he's talking about the totality of who we are. We've now returned to the one who made us. We've now returned to the one who created us. We've now returned to the one who saved us. We now return to the one who knows our hearts better than we know it. We've now returned to the one who knows our thoughts before they're even formed in our mind. We've returned to the one who, who, who knows us totally. And, and, and these terms, shepherd and overseer, are closely connected because... I'm sorry, Paul applies them to those who lead the, the, the local church. Keep your place there. And I want to go back and read Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. This is Peter when he's, he's on his way in, uh, to, to Rome and he stops by and meets with the, 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 the Ephesian elders one last time. And in Acts chapter 20 and, and verse 28, we read this. He says to them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. In other words, make sure things are right with you. Before you start checking on the flock, make sure you're where you need to be at spiritually. Again, it goes back to what Jesus said in Matthew. Jesus doesn't condemn us judging. What he says is, before you judge anybody, before you interact with somebody else's life, you better make sure you deal with the beam in your own eye before you start dealing with the speck in theirs. Because if I deal with the big old hunker beam in my eye, I'm going to approach the person with the speck a little bit differently. Because I'm broken just like they are. But Acts 20, as we said in verse 28, he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And the word translated to care for, poemene, is the same word that's translated shepherd. 
or pastor, which he, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Shepherd and overseer. Shepherd and overseer. The joining of these two terms informs and reminds us that Jesus Christ is our good shepherd who guides, who guards, who who feeds, who cares for, and who protects every aspect of our being. Of our being. And in the event and seasons of unjust suffering, we can have hope and find comfort. Hope, our companion in suffering, as we follow the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Think about this. Even when the shepherd takes us through the path of unjust suffering, it is the shepherd's path of safety, protection, It's the shepherd's path. The shepherd's path. He's leading me. And because he's the shepherd and overseer of the totality of my being, and even though the wolves are roaring and and, and howling and and pawing the ground on, on each side of me, the lions are roaring, seeking whom they may devour, I am safe as long as I stay on the path behind my shepherd. Because he goes before me. He goes before me. And the path that he's going to take me on is always a path of safety, protection, and deliverance. It can be a hard path. It might be a difficult path. It might be a stony path. It might be a path that has a lot of Grades that go up. But I'm safe. I'm protected. I'll be delivered. Because it's His path. Hope, our companion in suffering. Now we're going to take those things from the back burner. Hope, our companion in suffering. As the wounds of suffering heal me. How? How do the wounds of suffering heal me? Well, one of our brothers gives us a great example. It's, the, it's, it's our brother Paul and his unjust suffering. Let's go keep your place there and go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And, and, and so many times we read past this way, way, way too quickly. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Look at with me in verse 23 where Paul says, Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far... Greater labors. Now, listen to how many things are, are just unjust that he experienced. He experienced these things simply because he was seeking to walk with the Lord. For more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I mean, Paul's specific here, isn't he? 
Paul remembers those three times. He remembers that one time. He remembers those five times. He can count them. I was beaten with rods this time and this time and this time and this time and this time. A night and a day, I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. He continues, drop down to chapter 12 in verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore... I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, for the sake of Christ, for the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. He didn't say the pain lesson, did he? He didn't say that every day he didn't have to struggle with it, did he? He said, for the sake of Christ. In other words, because of what the the spiritual things that Christ is doing in my life. These physical wounds, these, these unjust sufferings that I'm experiencing. They are doing something far greater for me. It's for the sake of Christ. He says, I'm content. I'm content. I, I, I've given it to God. He didn't say, I'm happy about it. He didn't say, bring, it, bring more on, God. I'm content. Because I'm learning when I'm weak that I'm strong. As you and I go through the experience of unjust suffering, those wounds of unjust suffering can heal us. We can... Hope can be our companion in unjust suffering because as we experience unjust suffering, there's a work that God is doing in our lives. There's a work that God is doing. It doesn't mean that I just say, yip, yip, yippee, yahoo. But I can learn to be content. I'll trust God. I'll follow my shepherd because there's something greater going on in my life. Just as the example of Christ, again, we're following his steps. His steps lead him to experience unjust suffering. He experienced his wounds so that they could have a spiritual impact on others. And the physical unjust sufferings that we experience as we follow Christ have a spiritual impact upon our lives as we yield to what God is doing. And then finally, hope our companion in suffering as my unjust suffering and your unjust suffering has ethical implications for others. The text told us that Jesus' unjust suffering had ethical implications for others. What were those ethical implications that that he experienced? So that we can get as far away from sin as possible 
so that we can live lives of doing the right thing. And our unjust suffering can have that same kind of effect. We've seen it throughout history, church history, where people are martyred, and as the people that are martyring them watch, they come to Christ. Why do they come to Christ? Because they saw God giving that person dying grace. They saw that person praying for the one that was persecuting them and killing them. There are people watching you that you have no idea they're watching you. I have no idea that they're watching. But as they watch us walk through the difficult things of the unjust suffering that we experience just simply because we're believers, and they watch how we respond, the Holy Spirit takes those things and speaks to their heart. Some come to Christ. Some begin to follow the Lord. And we have no idea. No idea. And that's what can make unjust suffering hard so, sometimes. Because we don't always see the... Re- we we want to see the results. You know, if, if we see somebody come to Christ, then we say, it makes sense. Okay, it makes sense. Or we see how, we, how we've grown and changed and maybe it's dramatic. It makes sense. It makes sense. But sometimes we don't. Sometimes we don't but we continue to follow our shepherd because his path is always a path of safety, protection, and deliverance. Always. Always. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your work of grace in our lives. Father, as we've said over the course of these last several weeks, this is, this is easy to preach. It's difficult to live. And the pain and the disillusionment, the disappointment, the difficulties, the hardships of unjust suffering occur. We want to lash out. We want to speak out. We want to raise our voice, clench our fist. Act. Father, we pray that you'd help us to learn these truths and not not the tension that exists. There's all kinds of tensions here. Father, it's not a Pollyanna response. It's not a stick-my-head-in-the-sand response. It's not a response that denies the pain. It's not a response that denies the injustice. It's not a response that that denies the, the difficulty of it. But like our Savior, we don't respond in kind. We commit ourselves to the one, to the judge who judges justly. Father, give us the grace to do so. And as we work through the pain, as we work through the difficulties, as we work through the ways in which we were treated, Father, help us to grow and, 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 and learn these truths and struggle through them. And Lord, come to the place where we can say like Paul, I'll be content. Because when I'm weak, I'm strong. It took Paul three times. Three times 
God, take it away. God, take it away. God, take it away. And he never did. And he lived every day of his life dealing with whatever that thorn was. Every day he woke up with it in the morning. He felt its effects in the afternoon. He took it to bed with him every night. Every night. So, Father, grow us. Help us, Father. Strengthen us. Help us to be compassionate towards one another, to be patient with one another. To just come along beside and put our arms around each other. I don't have the answers. But your word does give us the example of Christ and bids us to come. Follow Jesus. I will follow Jesus. Anywhere He leads me, I will follow. Follow Jesus. I will follow Jesus. Anywhere He leads me, I'll go. Words of faith, but dangerous words. Help us, Father put our trust in the one who's walked the path of suffering that leads to glory so that we too will walk that same path follow him in the path of suffering in order that it leads to our glory when we hear you say well done well done thou good and faithful servant because you've been faithful over a few things I'll make you ruler over many until thou into the joy of your Lord. Pray your blessings upon each of us here today. May your word find lodging in our heart. May it not be snatched away by Satan. May the cares and the circumstances of life, may it not squish it and squash it out. May, Father, we think well through this and not just respond quickly, but let it marinate in our, in our hearts and in our thinking. That we may make sound, good decisions that are not a mere emotional response. Thank you for all that's ours in Christ. For we pray these things in Christ's name through the Spirit. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, we don't have an altar call but we do have an invitation because we're all going to respond to God's word today. We respond to it whether somebody walks an aisle or doesn't walk an aisle. I'm going to take the truths that I've heard today and I'm going to do something with it. And what I do with it will determine my response. I don't know your heart today, but the God that we've talked about does. Maybe you're discouraged and you just you need his strength. Maybe you're really just struggling right now and we need God. Rest in His faithfulness. Rest in the fact that God doesn't, Jesus doesn't crush a broken flax or, or, or quench a, 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 a bruising. He doesn't crush a broken reed or quench a, 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 a smoldering flax. In other words, He doesn't kick us when we're down. He doesn't kick us when we're down. When we need wisdom, He doesn't chide us. 
gives it to us. Don't know your heart. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, it starts there. Are you certain that when you draw your last breath that you'll open your eyes in the presence of, of Christ? If you're not, you can't be. The gospel is very plain. And if you're not sure about it, we'd love to talk with you after the services. For those of us who are believers, I just want to encourage you today. And not only whatever you're going through, but encourage us today as we help one another. Come along beside each other. We're going to go to the Lord in a time of silence, and then after time of silence, we'll, we'll continue our worship. Let's go to the Lord.